we're looking at the last half, just to situate us before uh, we get into the, before I read the text here. There we go. Uh, just to, to remind you, and if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you can probably rattle these off with me. But remember, there's four signs in a row, four parables, four signs. And Jesus reveals in these four signs his power over nature, calming the sea, his power over the demonic uh, that Austin taught on last week, did a great job on that. And then this week we see his power over sickness and over death. Now we pick up at the end or the beginning or midway through what has been an extremely long day. And I have to confess, I never really noticed this uh, before until Austin drew our attention to it last week. But at uh, 4.35, he finishes teaching these parables. He's in the boat where he's been teaching, projecting his voice over the waves. And he says, let's go to the other side. So they go to the other side. They confront this man and confront them rather filled with demons. Jesus drives out the demons that go into the pigs. Remember, the pigs are destroyed. Uh, and so then the, the, the swineherds say, leave our land. We don't want you here. Back in the boat, they row back to the other side. And that's where we pick up this, uh, this evening. Uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, that again, there's a lot packed in there. It's been a very long day uh, crossing the river twice. When Jesus had again, or not the river, but the Sea of Galilee, rather. When Jesus had again Uh, Crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said to herself, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowds pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling And fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John. Brother James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. 
But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word. Let's uh, pray as we turn to this. Lord, we thank you for your word, which shows us your son, what he was like, why he came, who he still is today. We see in ourselves uncleanness, uh, sickness that needs healed. We see in ourselves uh, death, a tendency towards death, and we need new life. By your word, quicken us. Help us, Lord, not to fear, but to believe. Amen. Okay, this is what we've talked about a couple times, a Markin sandwich, that there's one story interleaved within another story here. Um, In this case, likely because that's the order it happened in. It says while he was on the way, you know, Jarius comes to him by the seaside, he's on the way to Jarius' house, and he encounters this woman. But we could imagine other ways Mark could tell the story. He could have told all about the woman and then about Jarius, uh, vice versa. Uh, he tells the story together, and I think he does so because he really wants us to reflect on these two stories in close conjunction. Let's consider first these two that come to Jesus, Jarius and this woman. What does this tell us about, about Jarius? What do you see there? Doesn't have to be profound. Yeah, Jan. He's a ruler of the synagogue. That's right. So uh, probably not a particularly large city, maybe a couple hundred. The synagogue would be ruled by a small council of three or four men. Uh, Nevertheless, it would be a respectable role in his community. So ruler of the synagogue. Anything else? Yeah. He loves his daughter. That's right. Yeah, he loves her very much. Yeah, we see his, his desire. Yeah, Ben. Yeah, and it really, um, I've been challenged in the last couple of years really to track that out and who is actually, our tendency is to lump together the Pharisees, Sadducees, temple rulers, synagogue rulers, all into one group. But I was struck even looking at the questions, I kind of rattled off a bunch of questions that Jesus gets asked this morning. I was struck that it's the Pharisees who ask, when will we see the kingdom of God come? So the Pharisees even are saying, they're recognizing Jesus is somehow going to bring in the kingdom. Uh, synagogue rulers, he's preaching in all these synagogues all around in the Galilee region. So uh, yeah, it, it's interesting to wonder what their attitude is. Um, uh, certainly, uh, there's a funny story. I like listening to um, St. Helen's Bishop's Gate. It's in the financial district in London. And anyways, but uh, they tell a story there that when John Wesley came to preach at that church, uh, they actually locked the pulpit. It was one of these ones you go up the stairs and they said, preach no more here. Uh, okay, no one, the synagogue rulers aren't saying that to Jesus yet. And yet, are they totally comfortable with his preaching? It's a bit wild. Yeah, so, uh, but he does, he does seem to at least when the going gets tough, he comes to Jesus with, uh, yeah, yeah, great observation, Ben. Anything else? Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's a little bit later, I think. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, and and I'll, I'll come back to this later, but it's interesting in connection with the lady who's healed as well. Doesn't just let us look an explicit thing. Yeah, great. Yeah, Chris. Yeah, he believes Jesus can heal her. Okay, so he's probably at the center of his community and a respectable figure as a synagogue ruler. Um, low-hanging fruit, he's a man. Okay, a woman for the way of society. What else do we see about this woman? She's unclean. That's it. Yes, she would have been ritually unclean. Yeah, Lulu? Yep. They touch his clothes, but they don't actually have faith. That's a great question. Uh, let's hang on to that for just a minute. Is that okay? We'll come back to it. That's a great question. Yeah. Ordinarily. Yeah, ordinarily it would be making Jesus unclean. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, it is a bold move. Um, uh, it even, strictly speaking, is transgressing the... Or afraid of something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so she's unclean, ritually impure. She's sick. It says she suffered much, so she's in pain. Yeah. Yeah, she seems to be, yeah, out of, spent all that she had. She's out of resources, out of options. And due to her unclean status, she would have been marginalized in her community. So Jarius is kind of in the center. She's on the, on the margins. Yeah, Dan. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think, uh, and drawing attention to that, I think Mark's wanting us to associate with what Israel really needs. And so I'll come back to that. But yeah, that's a great, great observation. Yeah, Ben. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. And... It, it, the woman perhaps has a sort of almost magical mindset here that if she can touch Jesus' clothes, something about that. Um, there's the weird story about people touching the apostles with handkerchiefs in the book of Acts and then taking back and touching people. So there's, clearly people don't all have their theology all worked out. And yet James says that the elders should lay hands on the sick and pray for them. So it's, it's a, um, a common thing that's encouraged by the church, not discouraged. Um, but yeah, there is something about the physical contact um, as well. Okay, so Jarius and, and this woman, in many ways, are very different. They're coming from opposite ends of the social spectrum. Uh, he's unclean, probably couldn't come to the dog, okay? So they're coming from different places. But they meet at this point. They're both desperate. They both can't... Uh, they both end up falling to their knees or falling on their faces. What does it say? Fell at his feet, and she fell down before him. So they both fall to the ground in front of Jesus. Uh, and at that point, a playing field between them. I want to consider for just a moment here the role that faith plays in all four of these episodes together. In 536, Jesus tells uh, Jairus, do leave. That echoes pretty close. Jesus asks the disciples, why are you afraid? Why don't you have faith? Okay, so again, that fear and faith are linked together. 33 comes in fear and trembling, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. 
Okay, so we see fear and faith linked in the woman there. Okay, Jesus says your faith has made you well to the woman, but her faith seems a bit confused. Uh, she's going to sneak through the cl- crowds and touch the hem of his garment um, uh, or, or just a little bit of his clothes, and maybe she can sneak away without anyone even knowing. It does sound a little bit like um, like almost magical kind of way of trying to get healed here. Uh, but, you know, the old illustration that if you if you're falling uh, out of a tree and you grab a branch, it doesn't matter how much faith or how little faith you have in that branch or how sure you are about the type of branch it is. It's the branch that holds you or doesn't, not your faith in it one way or the other. Um, and likewise, this woman, uh, even if her faith is somewhat confused, she reaches out and she grabs the objectively, objectively real thing that can help her. She grabs Jesus rather than something else. Her faith, he says, your faith has made you well. Of course, he's not saying your faith has, is the cause of your healing, as if you just have enough faith, you can fix it. But in some sense, Jesus is acting, and we're going to see this again next week. We'll come back to it in chapter 6. In some sense, it's contingent upon the faith of the people he's interacting with. But who then has faith for the, little, the young girl to be made alive? Certainly not the young girl who's dead. Yeah, he does encourage Jairus to have faith, not to fear, but only believe or trust. But as Austin pointed out last week, far from having faith, the demoniac sees Jesus and begs him not to send the demons away. In what sense does he have any faith in Jesus? I think when we take all this together, there's a clear emphasis on the importance of faith, especially in the place of fear, but that can't be the whole story. As if our faith, you know, if you just have enough faith, you can be healed. Rather, there's a balance here. We're seeing uh, the young girl has no possibility of having faith. The demoniac is opposed to God's work. Uh, and so there's a side of it that even our faith has to start on God's side, that God's doing the work that we can even have faith. This, uh, remember, this man, once he's healed, he really should have a name, uh, calling him the demoniac after they're all gone and he's this evangelist for it really isn't fair. But, uh, but clearly he has faith and he goes proclaiming the good news about what Jesus said to him to his whole hometown. So clearly he has faith, but the beginning point of faith is not his own action, but Jesus' action. And so there's this balance in these stories here. The young girl is dead. Uh, she has no possibility her own to have faith, and yet Jesus raises her up. And so there's a balance between, on the one hand, we are called to believe, don't fear, but believe. And yet, on the other hand, there's a recognition that we can't believe simply on our own power. It's also important, I think, to reflect for a moment on, on faith, because this story taken on its own, I'll go in peace, uh, could be almost oppressive. Okay, you could say, well, why, why, why have I not been healed of my cancer or my pneumonia or whatever my situation is? And it, and it says, well, daughter, your faith has made you well, so you must not have enough faith, and that's why you haven't been healed. And I think that's the wrong way to push this story because clearly there's all sorts of people with all sorts of problems throughout Jesus' day, and yet it's only select individuals he heals. And this woman's faith is not particularly great. She sneaks through the crowd. Uh, She doesn't come up for an altar call on stage or something like that. She's not putting herself in the center of attention. She sneaks through the crowd and just touches his robe and then only comes when he calls her out. Okay, It's, It's clear that she's not expressing some great audacious faith. And yet even just a little bit of faith in the right object 
uh, is what's necessary. There's odd details in the story of this woman being healed. She feels in her body that she's healed. I don't know exactly what that means. Uh, somehow she senses that the bleeding has stopped and that she is healed. And then Jesus feels that power has gone out from him. That raises a whole set of questions that never really get answered in the Bible about what does that mean? Does he have uh, somehow, even, even though it's clearly God's miraculous power working through him, it's still draining on him as a human being. And of course, after this very long day is very draining on him. Somehow he senses the power has gone out. What seems to me to be key in this story, or at least one of the keys, is that he doesn't simply say, okay, someone's been healed, that's great, that's part of my job, I heal people, that's well enough, let her go. Uh, the healing narratives in general not only are physical events, but they also involve restoration into the community. There's almost always a larger community element. We see that so clearly in Mark chapter 2, I believe, that Dan taught on, that the um, uh, 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 friends bring the paralytic I think that's the beginning of chapter two. Yeah, it is. The friends bring the paralytic and lower him down through the roof. That there's, it's not just the, him on his own, but the friends are part of him. We see this at other points. Uh, uh, people are bringing all of their sick to Jesus. Okay, It's not just the sick coming on their own, but there's this community element. Likewise with this lady, simply being healed is not enough, but she's restored into the community. And so he calls her out. Uh, and there's this funny back and forth. Who touched my garments? The disciples, it kind of sounds like a parent's in the car, you know, that the kids, he touched me, she touched me, you know, that kind of thing that you're dealing with in the car. Uh, parents, uh, surely we're not the only ones that deal with that, but uh, it kind of sounds like that. They're like, what are you talking about who touched you? You're, you're in a crowd, a whole bunch of people are touching you. And he doesn't leave it there, though. Uh, he keeps looking around, searching for her. And the woman, knowing what had happened, came in fear and trembling. You wonder, okay, he's looking around the crowd, who touched me? Do they make eye contact through the crowd? Uh, somehow she recognizes or realizes over here as he's, he's looking for someone. Uh, what brings her to, to him? It's not made explicit, but she comes in fear and trembling and falls down and told him the whole truth. That's interesting. The whole story has to come out. Um, and as uh, uh, Sarah noted, it's even confessing, yeah, I, I, I potentially am transcending the bounds of a ritual law here, that this theoretically would make you unclean. It doesn't mean that that's immoral to do or, or unethical, but that if Jesus were an ordinary person, an ordinary Jewish man, he would have had to go through a process of ritual purification before he could enter the temple again. Um, and yet what we see here, the same thing we saw in... Uh, Oh, no, we're seeing it here. Uh, 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 we've seen it in other stories, too. But what we're seeing here is that Jesus, being touched by this woman, he doesn't become impure or unclean, but she becomes whole. Uh, there's, there's a radically different dynamic than ordinary human contact with something that's impure. Uh, and, and, and so, your daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Go in shalom. Go out in the fullness of life. And be healed of your disease. So there's a restoration. Any other, uh, there's of course lots we could say, but any other comments or questions on the woman before we go on to Jarius and his daughter? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, so Isaiah 6, um, woe am I for I'm a man of unclean lips from an unclean people, takes the coal from the altar and touches his lips and that, the words, this, this movement. I'm trying to think, of course, whenever you say the only thing, then immediately I'm trying to go through my file cabinet of like, can I think of any other examples of things that would make clean? But yeah, the, there is the uh, putting the blood element that somehow deals with all this uncleanness. Um, yeah, uh, and, and we'll, we'll come back to that again because Jesus, uh, again, uh, Taking the, it's the same, the same theme. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I just I, I think that's not where Jesus' focus is. Uh, um, yeah, well, it's a it's a good topic for dinner. That's the right thing to say. That there's there's uh, I mean, there's all these sorts of questions about what is uncleanness actually symbolizing. It's a ritual category. It's not a moral. I mean, it can be. It blends into the moral, but it's not in and of itself to be be unclean is not to be a sinner. Um, full stop. So, so it, it has symbolic aspects, but I think the uncleanness is symbolizing somehow a lack of life in some way or another. So this woman, um, by perpetually bleeding, that's losing life power. Um, and so she's marked by death in a sense. Um, and in, in one way, you could say all of our sickness is like that, that we're marked by death in one way or another. Um, I think in the early 20th century, Emily can correct me on this, but early 20th century doctors used smell as a way to detect cancer. Is that right? That there was a distinctive smell that people, cancer patients had, uh, used dogs. dogs to smell it. Uh, so I, I, there's, there's, we're marked by death when we're sick, when we're not well. Um, so that, why it makes us unfit to come into the presence of the Holy God is because God is so full of life in himself. Uh, the perichoresis this morning, the Trinity overflows in life out into creation. Um, okay, well, in Jesus, I mean, in the flesh, reverse dynamic. So it's not um, life comes to this woman rather than uncleanness coming on Jesus. Um, yeah, there's a lot, a lot more to say there, and I'm not quite sure I understand Leviticus all the way either. So that's, a, yeah, Ben, I think you had a... Hmm. And he says, You're yeah. 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 Yeah, that's a way to put it. Yeah, that's what I was trying to get out of saying that there's this community element as well that you can restore someone into the community. But yeah, that's a great, great observation. Yeah. Nate. Yeah. 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 Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a, it, it is a, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, yeah, John. It seems like maybe before, she, when she first 
Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. What I, yeah, I, I think so. She told him the whole truth. Okay. I'm unclean. This is what's been happening. I've spent money on all kinds of doctors. None of this is, you know, her whole story. She told him the whole truth. Uh, and he responds to her daughter. It's such a, a, a tender way to refer to her daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. So there's, there's this sort of, um, you're fully restored now, uh, not only physically, but to the community. Um, and, and that has to be an explicit encounter with Jesus. It can't just be something that she goes home being healed and years later figures out on her own or something like that. It's, it's encountering Jesus himself. Okay. Coming to Jerry's house again, there's odd details, uh, or, or odds, the wrong word, charming details to this narrative. Uh, while he's speaking to the woman, while he's still speaking, there comes from the ruler's house someone who says, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Uh, and he doesn't, Jarius doesn't say anything to Jesus, but Jesus overhears what they're saying. He overhears the conversation and he says to him, do not fear, only believe. And so Jarius is now confronted with two voices. Okay. One comes from a different saying, don't bother the teacher anymore. She's dead. It's beyond hope. There's nothing left to do. Jesus is the other voice who says, don't fear, only believe. And it's interesting. There's a great crowd that meets Jesus at the great crowd follow to this point. But now it says he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. The same three disciples that are going to go with Jesus uh, when he goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 9, I believe. And, and I wonder if there's an association there. They're seeing something of Jesus's glory that's not yet being revealed to the crowds. The end of the story, no one should know this until the proper time. Um, so he allows only the three, the same three, uh, his powers revealed. He gets there and these mourners are, are wailing loudly. They're weeping. Perhaps they're professional mourners. It's unclear. That seems to be a practice in the first century. Um, uh, and, I, and I guess the thought is uh, you have some mourners come and they're doing their mourning rituals. And that loudness gives you a chance that, you know, if you just want to scream or cry or whatever, then there's kind of space to do that. It doesn't feel awkward that you're the only one screaming or crying or whatever. So it's a bit of an emotional outlet. Uh, and yet they flipply, flip a switch from uh, uh, crying loudly to laughing at Jesus when he says, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They They're also... They go into where the child was uh, laying on this deathbed. Uh, and again, and I'm going to have to think about this a little bit. Maybe he is unclean from now, but he doesn't go into the temple. So it's not really, in that sense, making a, a, a major issue. Uh, and yet he's not worried about it. He's not like the story of the Good Samaritan when the priest and the Levite cross to the other side of the road and don't want to touch a dead body, right, and, and, and become unclean. Uh, he reaches out and he grabs her hand. Now, sometimes it's said, uh, you know, that, you know, modern medical science, we know that this isn't true, that someone comes back to life, and, that, and so somehow this miracle story is un, uh, undermined. Well, there have been lots of great advances in modern medical science, 
but one of them has not been figuring out when someone's dead or not dead. That's something that ancient people could tell just as easily as modern people. Um, when someone's heart's beating, when it's not, when they're breathing, when they're not, it's pretty clear that she's dead. This young girl's been dead long enough that she's dead. Enough time for them to get back. This is not like a long pause between breaths or something like that. She really and truly is dead. And yet he reaches down to her. He grabs her hand, lifts her up. He says he's lifting her up out of death into life. Well, let's look at the center of this story then for just a moment, at Jesus himself. Uh, he doesn't initially say anything to Jairus. Jairus comes to him, he appeals to him to go, and it says, and he went with him. Okay, he's just going. He doesn't say anything while the crowd's about him, while the woman's coming to him. He doesn't speak, in fact, until verse 30, who touched my garments? Sounds a little bit like the kid in the backseat. You know, Dad, someone touched me. Annoying, that kind of a thing. You know, you're like, why is he... Is this what he's concerned about in the midst of a big crowd? And as we've already discussed, the point is to bring this woman to him, to faith. The disciples try to discourage him uh, from finding out who touched him, but Jesus persists. The woman comes in fear and trembling. And then see the tenderness in Jesus' response in verse 34. He, he addresses her as daughter. Uh, not mentioning me, stranger, why are you here? Anything like daughter. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, be healed of your disease. Then at this point, it's an interesting transition. Up to this point, he's basically passive. Jerry's asks him to go. He doesn't even speak. He just follows him. He's in the midst of a big crowd. The woman comes to him and touches him. But then he wants to find out who touched him. Then he starts taking initiative, and he goes from being a messenger. It's all going to be fine. Trust me. Go with me. He tells the crowds, uh, you know, he wants to pray or teach the disciples, but the crowds are too much. He can't get rid of them. Now he's forceful enough to stop the crowd from following him any further. He allowed no one to follow him except James, uh, uh, John, and Peter. Uh, then he comes. He kicks all these people out of the house. He put them outside. Okay. Again, takes her by the hand and then again speaks so tenderly. Little girl, sweetheart, it's time to get up. So we, it's an interesting picture of Jesus. Now, looking at these, uh, sorry, any, any, any questions or comments on, on healing Jairus' daughter? And then I'll wrap it all up here. Yeah, Chris. The very last thing that he told her to give her something. Yeah. 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 That's right, that's right, eating on the... Yeah. And I think, I, I think the other time I preached on this, Nate, it was a communion Sunday. And it's a great text in that respect because Jesus brings us to life and then gives us something to eat. That there's a, a bit of a spiritual... Um, uh, in the Exodus that we'll look at in just a second... Um, they are delivered from Egypt. They pass through the waters. They get into the wilderness, and then God provides manna for them. He gives them something to eat. So there's that recurring pattern. But yeah, this proof of it's a really living human being that needs to eat. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Albert. I'm curious why Jesus said she's not dead. She's yeah. Whereas Lazarus, he delayed for three days. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then he's definitely not wanting to publish it at this point. I think two things. I think one part of the significance is that in, in light of Jesus and death is, is one part of the art and going out on a limb a little bit here, but after Lazarus is raised from the dead, there's plots to kill Jesus in the gospel of John and to kill Lazarus. And so perhaps there's a sense that 
my mission isn't yet to that point. It's clear from the passage we looked at this morning, Jesus has been thinking about this. He recognizes when he goes to Jerusalem for this final confrontation, how it's going to end. And so maybe there's like a little bit of downplaying of saying, it's not time yet for a Lazarus type. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, reflecting on these four miracles and four symbolic actions, um, I think what's going on here, we see uh, the miracle or the, or the power over nature calming the waters. And when I taught on that two weeks ago, I point that back to the Exodus in a number of ways. Um, remember, they said, who is this? That key question. And in the book of Exodus, and then they fear him. In the book of Exodus, after they cross through the waters, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against them, so the waters crushed him. So the people feared the Lord. People keep fearing here. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And that same kind of dynamic is happening here. We see Jesus, uh, his power over the wind and the waters. We see him defeat me, not this time uh, human me like the Egyptians, but rather he drowns his demonic enemy in the sea. Again, it's sort of reenacting this exodus where the waters drown the Pharaoh and his armies. And then this point that Dan pointed out, one has been uh, wrestling with this issue for 12 years. The young girl is 12 years old. I think that they are both meant to then be a sort of stand-in or symbol for Israel itself. After God delivers the Egypt, he brings them to Mount Sinai and he sets them up as a people. He says, here's your law. Here's how you'll behave. Here's how your tribes, your 12 tribes will march. Here's their different jobs. Here's where they can. And again, is maybe picking up on some of that. The point being that this woman is unclean and needs to be made clean. God's people, if she's a stand-in or a symbol for the 12 tribes of Israel, are unclean and need to be made clean. The young girl, again, if, if she's a symbol for God's people, the 12 tribes, they're spiritually dead and they need to be made alive. So they both stand in for Israel, the movement from unclean to clean, from dead to life. And the way that happens with Jesus uh, and this recurrent motif, don't fear, but believe, have faith, trust. And that's ultimately our hope as well, to be made clean, to be made alive, is through faith in Jesus. And yet it's not our faith that causes that. It's us reaching out and grabbing hold of Jesus, the sure Savior, who makes that possible. Any other last comments or questions on that? Good. Perfect. Let's turn then to our time of prayer uh, together before we head to eat together.